Digital Audio Health by Cymatrax. Welcome to the Rhonda Grant Show with your host, Rhonda Grant. If you believe that there is more to life than what you see right now and you want to find out more, listen in as her guests share their journey and their extraordinary experiences. Now, here is your host, Rhonda Grant. Welcome to the Rhonda Grant Show. Sometimes the universe has a way of placing people or obstacles in your path to help guide and direct you on your mission. Listen in as we discover the path my guest has traveled. Has he been inspired by a calling, crafted his journey, or a bit of both? I invite you to embrace the conversation and to use it to help you to recognize if this is happening in your life. Our guest today is Rob Dubin, who is a serial entrepreneur who created multiple seven-figure businesses. He is an award-winning film director who traveled the world making television programs and TV commercials for Fortune 500 clients. Rob spent 25 years studying human happiness in over 100 countries, and today he teaches the skills of happiness and the science behind human well-being. His strategies help increase employee engagement and reduce resignations. The results are happier employees and more profitable organizations. In a few minutes, you will have proven strategies to make you and your teams happier starting today. Welcome to the Rhonda Grant Show, Rob. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have a conversation with you. Well, I have been so looking forward to this conversation with you because you are such an interesting man. Let the audience know a little bit about your background. Well, I was very lucky when I was in high school that I knew what I wanted to do. I'd grown up in the Colorado mountains and I loved taking pictures when I was hiking in the mountains. And so that interest in trying to convey how beautiful the mountains were with photography led me to want to become a photographer. And so when all my friends were applying to liberal arts colleges, I applied to a photography school and I went on to, uh, to film school and then started my own film production company when I was like 21 or 22 years old. How did you learn how to do all of this to start a production company at that age? Well, I didn't intend to start my own production company. I thought I would get out of school and work for other people. And I had job offers in Hollywood, but I didn't want to live in Hollywood. I've always focused on living my life to make myself happy. And living in LA was not going to make me happy because I really loved being in the mountains. So I decided I wanted to be as make the best films I could make living where I wanted to live. So I came back to Colorado and thought I would get a job with somebody else. But all the production companies were very small and they didn't really hire outside cinematographers very often. So I hung out my own shingle and in very short order, I was uh, getting really quality jobs. And within a few years, I had leapfrogged my friends that did go to Hollywood. They were still working as somebody's assistant for many years. And I was traveling all over the world, making films for ABC and NBC and for a number of Fortune 500 companies. Well, that's incredible. So, and the reason I say that is not only were you talented, because anybody who's doing anything with cameras and videos really has to have a good eye. And, but to be an entrepreneur on top of that is, it takes a lot of guts. 
right? And so that is wonderful. So talk about some of the projects that you were on. Uh, well, I was an adventurer, so I was a mountain climber. I had climbed most of the 14,000-foot mountains in Colorado before my 21st birthday, and I took up kayaking, and I loved adventure kayaking, and and I was a big skier. And so those were the films that I wanted to do, and I was lucky enough to make a living doing those kinds of films. So on Sunday, you might find me skiing up at Vail uh, on my day off on Sunday, and on Monday, you might find me skiing with a camera in hand. And I was probably having more fun on Monday because not only was I skiing, but I was engaging my creativity and doing the other things that I wanted to do. So, you know, we hear about people hating to go to work on Monday. For me, often going to work was better than the weekend. Ah, yeah, very, very interesting. And so when you're far away and doing these types of this type of work, I don't really understand that part of it, this part of it that I'm going to ask you about is where then did you have to take the film in order to produce it? What happened with it? Well, uh, like if we did, I'll give you one example. I did a, mm -hmm. a number of shows for ABC television. ABC used to have a program called Wide World of Sports many years ago, mm -hmm. and it was adventure sports. And uh, Wide World of Sports and American Sportsman was the adventure sports part of it. And so like we did a, a climb of a mountain right next to Mount Everest in Nepal, and we spent three months on location in Nepal filming first this mountain climbing expedition and then a kayaking expedition on a, an explored river nearby. And we were on location for three months and then we would come back and the film would be edited either at our studios in Denver or at the ABC headquarters in New York. And then it would air and that would be one project. It might be a multi-month project. Some of the projects were just a, a weekend filming or a week filming, something like that. And we did a lot of TV commercials and corporate films. Uh, Colorado doesn't have a lot of major corporations headquartered here, but companies like Coors or Johns Manville or Ball <laughs> Corporation, they would be some of my clients. Mm -hmm. And so when you think back over that time, can you talk about your favorite project that you were on? I would say uh, any of the adventure sports ones were always interesting because you were with people that were at the top of their game. So you were learning, and I was quite young when I was doing this, so I was learning life lessons from some of the best people in their sport. And often these sports are totally the opposite of you know, NFL football players with, you know, gigantic salaries, you could be the best mountain climber in the world. And, you know, the guy's probably a carpenter on the side to make a living. But when you're with people that are the best in their sport, you pick up some of their work ethos that they're how committed they are to doing things, you know, unlimited amounts of practice and work and work and work until you perfect it. And those are the kind of things that rubbed off on me and became part of my own uh, life uh, life lessons, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, I'm just marveling at what you're saying because you were around people, as you say, at the top of their game. But to be at the top of their game, they had to do a series of things every day to be there and that a lot of people wouldn't want to do. I mean, a lot of people just want to watch television. They don't want to maybe achieve at that level, live at that level, be at that level. Can you talk a little bit more in depth about that feeling that you had from them and about yourself too? 
Well, I would say uh, I've done a lot of work with Tony Robbins over my life, and Tony talks about we have life metaphors. Mm -hmm. And I would suppose that my metaphor, my life core metaphor was shaped from being a kid who loved to mountain climb. And so mountain climbing, you know, when you're halfway up the mountain, it is not fun. And, you know, I take yoga classes now and my yoga teachers tell me to listen to my body. But I have a difficult time with that because if you're listening to your body and you're dragging a 50 pound pack or an 80 pound sled up some mountain, your body is saying, don't do this. It's not fun. So uh, I learned that if you keep putting one foot in front of the other, you'll probably get where you're going. But it takes a lot of determination and a lot of, you know, overcoming obstacles. And so I guess in Tony Robbins parlance, that became my metaphor for life. So when mm -hmm. I started a, you know, my own company at 21 or 22 years old, I didn't know what I didn't know, but uh, I was willing to just put one foot in front of the other until I was successful. And I think that's a, a metaphor for life. You know, failure is when you quit, that's all it is. I mean, mm -hmm. if you keep going, you haven't failed. And if you don't accomplish your goal, you probably learn something. And so that to me, it's not failure. If I did, even if I don't accomplish my goal, if I've learned something mm -hmm. along the way, I yeah. still take it as some kind of success. And I know what not to do or what in the future or what to do differently in the future. So it's still a win if you look at it that way. But it does take determination. As you say, a lot of people just want to come home and, you know, pop a six pack and sit on the couch and, if that's what they want for life, I'm not here to say their life should be any different. Mm -hmm. What I do today is I actually teach happiness. I'm a yes. motivational speaker and I travel around the country and I work with organ uh, conferences or associations or individual corporations and I teach happiness and employee happiness. And happiness, some of the keys of happiness are personal growth. So if you're just sitting on the couch and you're not growing, you're missing a big opportunity for happiness because a big part of happiness comes when we do things that challenge ourselves and that create personal growth from that. And I recently did a TEDx talk exactly on that subject. It, it came out about two months ago and it's had, I think, 230,000 views in the last two months. Beautiful. Yes. Well, and yeah, I mean, you know, I went to a Tony Robbins um, event uh, where he spent almost the whole day conditioning everybody in the audience to walk across the bed of coals. And in two hours, I was ready to go. Like I had been conditioned enough. And <laughs> But, um, you know, for the safety aspect, he spent the whole day and still there were people did not want to do it, that couldn't do it, couldn't bring themselves to do it, where other people, when you're conditioned enough, you can't wait for that next step. You can't wait for that accomplishment. So I understand that really well. I love that you've talked about that you teach happiness, because I think that a lot of people are looking for happiness. And but where is happiness? And if they think, you know, if they have a goal, and they reach that, and then they they think, well, I'd be happier if I this or if this happened, or if I could go on a trip or and tell us about what you teach that may be different from that. Well, we all start from that place. And uh, when I I won't tell you exactly about my entire journey of happiness, because it would take us off topic a moment. But 
one of the things I did is I studied the happiness studies course at Yale University, and this is online. People can take it online. And a third of the course, it talks about things that don't make us happy, mm-hmm. which is sort of odd for a happiness course. But what it talks about is this uh, term that I love the term psychologists have come up with called miswanting. And we miswant. So we want things that we think will bring us happiness. And in fact, when we get those things, they often don't deliver much happiness, if, the, if at all. So if you ask anybody, would you be happy if you won the lottery? People would say, oh, you know, if I'm a five today, I would be a 10 on the happiness scale if I won the lottery. Well, in fact, what lottery winners, they move from maybe a five to a six and a half on the happiness scale. And then a year later, they're back exactly where they started from. Even if they still have a lot of them lose the money, but even the ones that don't lose the money that do responsible things with it, they find it doesn't change their happiness in a big way. And conversely, we find people that have uh, terrible accidents that maybe become paralyzed and they're living in a wheelchair or they have amputations and they lose a limb, their happiness plummets for a little while, but a few years later, they're back to pretty much where they were. And so we think these things that will make us happy, we miswant. And we don't actually realize the things that will really deliver true happiness. And so accomplishing a goal will bring you some temporary happiness, but the growth that you get along the way to accomplishing that, that actually delivers longer term happiness. Something with the Greek philosopher Aristotle called eudaimonic happiness. And eudaimonic happiness comes from things that bring purpose and meaning to our lives. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I just, (laughs) I wish you'd tell us more about that. So the people that wait and wait and wait and wait to go on a trip and they go on the trip, they get there after a few days, they're not all that happy. They're looking forward to coming home to be home again. That's a temporary happiness. It's a relief and an escape from what you're doing right now. But what you're talking about is the happiness is sustainable. If you have a goal and reach for that goal, it's the improvement of your exactly. life based that, on that. That's what that's one of the sources of happiness is as that kind of growth. And okay. the, the number one predictor of happiness is human connection. And okay. so people that have large groups or reasonable sized groups of very good friends have more happiness in their lives. And so that's why today we're experiencing a glut of unhappiness around the world. I just heard a couple days ago, Oprah is on a big uh, project to spread more happiness. That's what I do. And I know that's one of your uh, questions about my calling. And that's certainly what I have felt called to do. And part of the reason that we have so much unhappiness in our world today is that we spend so much time alone on our screens that we don't have as much human connection as we did in past generations. And that's something that we know is a predictor of happiness is close human connection. But you mentioned going on vacation. One of the things about going on vacation is it does allow you a chance to find deep, meaningful happiness as well for a particular reason. When I, you know, when I had my office in Denver, and I, I could get, I could walk out of my door to get and get in my car to go to the office, and then my next waking thought, I was walking in my door in the office. So I had driven there on autopilot completely. Yeah. I, you, I couldn't tell you what I thought about on the way there, and so 
you're not living in that present moment. If something happened in front of me, I maybe missed it. But when you go on vacation and you're in a new place in a new environment and maybe it's a different money system and a different language, your head is on a swivel, all of your senses are on high alert and you're noticing everything that's new and special and wonderful and different. And when you do that, when you live in the moment like that, you are much closer to finding true happiness. Because one of the things about happiness is it only exists in the present moment. I can't store up extra happiness now and feel it tomorrow. So to feel happiness and joy, you do need to be present. So that's one of the things I teach is being present, being non-judgmental. Those are two things that also come from mindfulness meditation. If any of your listeners are familiar with that, it's uh, the same kind of thing. So being present, which travel forces you to do in some ways, makes you more open to peak experiences, which you can experience more happiness in your life that way. Mm -hmm. And meditators, I mean, when you talk about they reach a level of bliss, and the more you meditate, the more time you spend meditating, the easier and quicker it is to get into that state, any place that you are, whether it's in an airplane, an airport, you can close out the world and find your own bliss for that, for those moments. I'm very interested for you to take us on a journey that you went on in the Colorado mountains, not realizing that a storm was on its way. Well, this was back in 1993. Uh -huh. And my wife and I were on a backcountry ski trip headed to a cabin deep in the Colorado mountains. And in 1993, weather reporting was nothing like it is today. The internet really didn't exist much. And there was a big storm that we were unaware of that came in very quickly. And it turned into a whiteout blizzard that prevented us from finding the cabin. And we were uh, out in the wilderness for five days in what became one of the worst storms in Colorado history. There were avalanches all over the state that trapped people in their cars and shut down the ski areas. And it threatened the water supply for the entire town of Aspen, Colorado. And on the third day, we were out there because the news was reporting on this massive storm every night. When they heard about the lost skiers, the story went viral and millions of people around America were watching the news reports to see if we'd been found alive. And so on the third day, they heard the sheriff say that there was less than a 10% chance we could have survived multiple nights in that raging blizzard. And then on the fourth day, my parents heard the sheriff say that they were it was too dangerous because of the avalanche conditions and they didn't want to be sending live rescuers after our dead bodies. And then on the fifth day, my parents heard the sheriff say they were calling off the search for us and they would recover our frozen bodies the following spring. And so just about when the entire country was giving up hope for us getting out alive, we actually made contact with the rescue team and, and we got out of the mountains. And we were both fine, but my wife had real severe frostbite on her hands and feet. And so they put her in an ambulance to the hospital. And moments later, the first phone call that I received was from the president of the United States calling to congratulate us on our perseverance and our survival. And over the next few days, we were on all the nightly news programs and all the network morning shows. And mostly they asked us how we had survived. What had we done, done to stay warm? We had no tents. We didn't have enough sleeping bags for the number of people. And, and they asked us how we had survived. But 
On the Today Show, Katie Couric asked us a different question. She asked us why we had survived. Why had we survived when so many others perish after a single night, when the sheriff you know, gave us such a low chance on after day two, a 10% chance of survival? Why had we survived? And the reason we had survived was because we were both optimistic and resilient. And the resilience, much of it goes back to what I talked about with climbing mountains earlier. It's that resilience to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And and that translates to whether you're starting a business or you're climbing a mountain or you're surviving in the wilderness, that kind of resilience. Mm -hmm. And we had optimism because we had cultivated optimism in our lives by being optimistic, happy people. And one of the ways people can be happier in their life is to cultivate optimism. And people, of course, say, well, optimism, that's where you see the glasses half full instead of half empty. But I believe it's actually something different than that. It's focusing on the portion of the glass that is full. So when the sheriff said we had a 10% chance of survival, maybe he was right. Maybe our glass was only 10% full, Mm -hmm. but we focused on what we could do with that 10%. And people can do the same thing in their life, in their businesses. If they're launching a new product launch or they're facing some new challenge in their business or with their family, look at the situation as it really is. See the glass as it really is, whether it's 5% full or 5% empty, see it as it really is and acknowledge it. And then focus on the problems in front of you, the empty part of the glass, if you will. But however much time you spend focusing on the problem, now spend three times that amount of time focused on the solution. So if you know, if your company is doing a new product launch and they say, here's all the barriers and hurdles we have to launching this product and they spend an hour in their meeting focused on that, now you've got to spend three hours focused on the solution. And if you do that with everything in your life, you will begin to cultivate more optimism. And when I uh, coach and do workshops with corporations that are struggling with employee burnout and employee resignations and disengagement, These are the kinds of things that we work on to where they're cultivating an optimistic viewpoint. And if you approach your life with that optimistic viewpoint, even if there's a toxic work culture or you have a bad boss or anything, you can't get rid of every problem in every business, but all of those problems get shrunken down if you have that, if you've cultivated that kind of optimism. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And so this optimism helped you and your wife surviving until you were rescued, which is the part that is the difficult part is surviving until then. So what are the types of things that you did? Well, I'm not going to get into the how because okay, it, right. it doesn't benefit anybody unless they're actually a wilderness person. But yes. th- for instance, I'll tell you, we had another woman with us and she did not think the way we thought. Okay. And on the second day, she was ready to lay down in the snow and die. And we were, she still continued to walk, but she just took her pack off and dropped it in the snow. And I was in front breaking trail and I didn't see that. And so now she had no warm, no more warm clothes. She didn't have a sleeping bag. She didn't have the food and water that we had carried. And she thought it was all pointless because she didn't have the same kind of optimistic view of life that we did. And we managed to get her out alive. My wife gave her her sleeping, sleeping bag to the other woman. We had to sometimes hand feed her, had to, she skied her way out, but I had to cajole her every 
few minutes to keep moving. And so we did get her out alive. But even after the trip, she thought about her life differently. She thought of herself as a victim. Her life got very closed in and small after that. And she passed away at a very young age um, because she just had a different viewpoint of herself. And we had we had had the same external experience. But the experience of our lives isn't what happens to us. It's how we think about what happens to us. And happy people actually think differently. So after the trip, she thought of herself as a victim and she reduced the size of her life. And as I say, she passed away at a young age. The message we took from it was, if we can survive that, we can survive anything that life throws our way. And so that's how we continued to live our life. And a few years later, one of the other questions Katie Couric had asked me was, are you going to continue to do adventurous things like this? And a couple of years later, I had a real good answer for Katie because my wife and I sold our home in Denver and we bought a sailboat and we set off to sail around the world. And we went on to spend the next 17 years living on our sailboat, sailing around the world, studying human happiness, actually. Remarkable. You're listening to The Rhonda Grant Show right now, whose podcast has been treated with digital audio health by my sponsor, Symatrex. And today we are speaking with Rob Dubin. Rob, can you let people know how they may reach out to you? Well, sure. They can uh, find me on my website with is just my name, R-O-B-D-U-B-I-N, robdubin.com. And uh, for your listeners that are interested in cultivating more happiness in their lives, uh, I have an ebook that they can uh, download if they text the word happier uh, to 33777 and put in their email. They'll be able to download an ebook with some of the strategies that we've talked about here and some other strategies that people can put to pl- work in their own lives and find more happiness in their own life starting immediately. Wonderful. So what extraordinary discovery have you found in your life? Well, as I said, I've always focused my life on being happiness. And I mean, I have like one rule for life, do the things that make you happy as long as they don't hurt anybody else. And so I have always done that in my life. And when we went off sailing, we didn't have any particular goal. I mean, when people climb Mount Everest or they do some big uh, event like that, they generally have a goal like climbing Mount Everest, getting to the summit and getting down safely. And I've done a lot of that kind of climbing. I've done kayaking unexplored rivers. I, I set an aviation record, I'm a pilot. And so I've done those kinds of things. But when we set off to go sailing, literally the only goal was to be happy. We didn't have any plan to be at any particular place by any particular time. We took it day by day for years. And we were surrounded by an entire group of people doing the same thing we were with exactly the same goal, simply to be happy. So I began to study what we did that made us happy on a regular basis, how it did the same work for all the other sailors we were with, because the sailors follow the wind and follow the seasons and stay out of hurricane season. So we're all going the same places at the same times of year. So we Mm -hmm. had friends that we leapfrogged with for off and on for 17 years. We might not see, we might've been together in Panama. And then the next time we see each other is two years later in Australia, halfway around the world, but then we'd spend months together again. And we did that all the way around the world. So we were unbelievably happy. I mean, 
If you had asked me before how happy I was, I would have told you I went eight or a nine on a scale of one to 10. After we went out sailing, I realized I was a 15 or a 20. So Mm -hmm. we were just so happy every day. And I began to study the things that we did and the things that everybody in our community did that created that kind of happiness. So over time, I developed this framework of mine that I now teach about happiness. When I got more serious about it, I then studied what the psychologists, there's a field of psychology called positive psychology. It's the study of human happiness. And I found out that almost every one of the things I had identified, so had the social scientists. So I knew I was on the right track. They had different words. And sometimes they had done experiments that uh, for things that I had just seen empirically over thousands and thousands of hours of studying people like myself. But mm-hmm. anyway, I identified and I now teach the science of human happiness. Mm-hmm. So-, so that's what I have been through to, to develop that. Mm-hmm. Being on a sailboat is very different because it's a confined area, no matter how big the sailboat is, right? But you've got all the water in the world that you want to swim in. So can you tell us a couple of things that made you happy on a daily basis? Just because I think the audience are saying, just tell us a couple of things, Rob. Well, uh, my wife and I just celebrated our 41st anniversary about three days ago. And uh, I tell people we've actually been married like 211 years because those 17 years on the sailboat, they're like dog years. You know, they count for seven each one. Because one of the most common questions we get is how did the two of you get along 24-7 on a small sailboat? And for us, it was just the opposite. It was bliss every minute, spending all of your time with your best friend, somebody who excites you every minute of every day. And so that's one of the things that made us happy all the time is sharing this incredible life with somebody who we got along with so well and who had such valuable uh, insights to what we were experiencing. And a lot of times something would happen and my wife's take on it would be completely different than mine. And a lot of people would say, you know, why does she think that way? Why doesn't she think like I do? And I had a different response. I just became endlessly fascinated by the fact that we had different responses. And it was always interesting to understand why. So that was one of the things that made me happy every day was sharing it with my wife. The Mm -hmm. other thing that something that makes all of us happier is spending time in nature. So after human connection, one of the very high things that delivers happiness is spending time in nature. So we were doing that all day, every day. We eliminated most of the stress from our life. The stress, there's multiple kinds of stress we have in our lives. And, you know, when I work with corporations and employees, that's one of the things I'm working with because they're, you know, they have employees that are stressed out in almost every company. And the things that cause us a lot of stress are the things that are out of our control. Mm -hmm. And in the sailboat, almost everything was in our control except the weather. So once you learn to live with that big if of the weather, everything else you felt you could do something about. And so it lowers your stress level in a lot of ways. There's a fear factor. I mean, the most common question I get from people is, you know, something about what about pirates or the worst storm you've ever been in. So Mm -hmm. people respond to the fear of sailing across an ocean. And I have a specific way that I deal with breaking down fear. 
I won't go into it here, but if it's in my TED talk, if people want to go to YouTube and if they just uh, search for my name, Dubin, D-U-B-I-N, happiness, they can see my TED talk, which explains a little bit about that. The title of the TED talk is happiness, how to face your fears and find it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the things that I, uh, the first thing actually that I think about is when you're sailing the oceans is pirates. So that would, I would be nervous about that. Not all of the time, but some of the time I'd be nervous about that. (laughs) So, I mean, it takes some bravery to do what you did. Well, it takes not necessarily bravery because courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is feeling the fear and going forward anyway. Yeah. And so it takes perhaps courage where you feel that fear, but you've got a way to deal with it. And again, that's what's in my TED talk. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that you were called to your journey? Very much so, because uh, I was 42 years old when I retired. That's when my wife and I sold our home. We thought we were going to go sailing for two or three years and then come back to work. But somehow we just never came back to work. We just kept on sailing. So we sailed for 17 years. And then when we finished and we had circumnavigated the world, we kind of had to decide, do we want to go around again or come back ashore? And there were things I missed about other parts of my life. I miss skiing, flying my airplane, some of those things. So we came back to Colorado and I was quite happily retired. And I would literally wake up in the morning to decide if I'm going to go skiing or go ride my mountain bike or go, I love to play pickleball now or whatever, those sorts of things that retired people do. And during COVID, I guess I was about 67, And I realized during COVID how many people were so unhappy with the lives they were living. And I just couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore when I knew how to teach people how to be better at being happy. So I started speaking uh, kind of toward the end of COVID. I started a speaking business and now I speak all over the country. Uh, I spoke at Burning Man the last week and I'm going to Seattle next week. Uh, And I speak at conferences or with corporations, teaching employee happiness, employee engagement, part of employee wellness. I'm working with my own county here where I live in Colorado. They're starting Mm -hmm. a countywide happiness project based on the things that I teach. So that's really exciting to be able to affect a whole county where I live. And so I very much felt called to to do that. I started it, as I said, just a few years ago at the end of COVID. And I'm very glad I did. I mean, it's way more work than I ever thought it was going to be, but it's also extremely gratifying. You know, every speech I do now, I have a few people, two or three or five, that come up at the end of the speech and tell me that I've just changed their lives, that they're going to focus on their own happiness and they see the world differently now. And when you hear that, it's extremely touching and humbling. Well, it is. And it is confirmation of what you're you're doing is affecting people and their lives, which is important. And during the pandemic, I mean, what happened is couples were home all day long. It was it's easy to live with someone when you see them in the morning, at night and on the weekends. But every day, all day long, people realized they weren't happy, didn't know how to be happy. And it's best just to point the finger and just, and there's a lot of split ups, a lot of divorces. So uh, yeah, you're making a difference in the world. And I could tell that and you're so excited about it, and really committed to it. And the fact that you spent that amount of time with your wife selling around the world is a true testament that you can be happy 
anywhere really, even on a, a, a sailboat and, and still learn because you came back with material. You thought you weren't working, but really you came back with material that is now that you're now inspiring thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, especially with a TED talk, right? Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to speak about? Well, I would say to people that happiness is a decision you make. So it's not something that happens to us when we tick all the right boxes in life, which is what we're told as we grow up. We're told about the pursuit of happiness, which is in the Declaration of Independence. And we're told that, you know, when you go to the college and you get the right job and you meet the right partner and you check all those boxes, happiness will fall out of the sky onto your head. And it just doesn't mm-hmm. work that way. But it is a decision you make on how you want to live your life. And then once you make that decision, it's something that is learnable. So if you wanted to be a piano player or learn to play tennis or ski or some sport or learn how to cook, what would you do? You would first decide that you wanted to learn the guitar. Mm -hmm. And then you would take some guitar lessons and then you would practice some chords. And over time you would get good at the guitar. Well, happiness is no different. You start off by deciding, I'm going to spend some time focusing on my happiness. And then you take some lessons, like some of the things that people can download, the the text file that I mentioned, if they Mm -hmm. uh, text the word happier to 33777, they'll get something that'll give them some strategies. And then they practice those strategies over time and they'll be happier. And I'll leave your audience with just one very simple thing, but one of the most powerful things you can do for your happiness. And it's start a gratitude practice. Mm -hmm. It's five minutes a day. And toward the end of every day, get, get a journal. And toward the end of every day, write down five things that you're grateful for that happened that day. And you have to spend only five minutes doing this. Now, it may only take you a minute to write all five, but spend five full minutes thinking about why those things make you grateful. And if you do that, simply simple gratitude practice five minutes a day, it will change your life. It changes your life. And can you tell the audience why it changes your life? Well, gratitude, when you're feeling gratitude, Mm -hmm. you cannot simultaneously feel worry or anxiety or sadness or misery or jealousy or want or any of those other negative Mm -hmm. emotions. So if you get in touch with feeling gratitude, that's the emotion that you will feel at that moment. And if you do it for, it takes two months to create for us to create a habit. So if you do this for two months, every day for two months, and if you skip a day, it's okay, but try and do it every day if you can for, they say 66 days to create a habit. And what happens when you do it each day, you're triggering the happiness chemicals in your brain, dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin, and you trigger these chemicals and each day you, as you do it, the, the happiness that you, from the chemical tr- stimulation lasts more than the five minutes. And your brain over two months starts to relate, when I do this thing, I feel happier. Now on the 67th day, you wanna do it because you know it makes you feel good. And I don't write them down every day anymore, but I guarantee you, I think about, happiness is the emotion I feel most of my waking hours, I mean, gratitude, excuse me, is the motion. I feel most of my waking hours. I'm always grateful. I'm grateful for that. I'm able to talk with you right now. And you asked me, 
how much time I had for our discussion. And yes. I told you as much time as we need, because that's the being present part of it. So mm -hmm. I am totally present now, and I'm grateful to have this opportunity to share these ideas. So that's what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just wonderful. And it's wonderful to be present. And when you're writing in your gratitude journal or whatever, I like pieces of paper, and then I add them all up and staple them together, is that it invites that feeling of being present. And and being grateful. And, and sometimes if, even if you have to think things up, like even if it's tiny, just write it down because as you say, it changes your life. But the thing with gratitude is it raises your vibrational frequency. And when you raise your vibrational frequency, all this really good things start happening in your life so that you have more and more and more to be grateful about. And that is the magic with gratitude. And a lot of people say, well, I have to go to the store. I have to get a journal. I have to get, you know, a good pen that I want to write with. No, pieces of paper, line pieces of paper, because <laughs> you can write as much as you can, right? That's Absolutely. And you hit an important point. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It's not that I, you know, closed a million dollar deal today. It can be my kid got a good grade on something at school. I my favorite song came on the radio as I was driving home. You know, I had my favorite food for lunch, whatever. It can be simple things. And the more you focus on the simple things in your life, then you will start noticing how many more of them you have. Mm -hmm. And that's the big thing is notice you start to notice things that you can write in your journal. And it just changes your to me, it changes your whole perspective of life itself. Absolutely, is, because on day five or six, you're going to go now, what am I going to write about today? And then you're going to notice that good thing that just happened to you. And so you start noticing so much more of the goodness in your life. Mm hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. I knew this was going to be so exciting. And I almost said fasten your seatbelt at the beginning, but I didn't um, because I knew that this was going to be fantastic. I am so pleased that I've met you. And thank you so much for everything that you've imparted with the audience today. And I'm hoping that they'll text in and get the the happiness formula so that you can spread more happiness because you're just the man to do it. Thank you so much, Rhonda. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Theme song for the Rhonda Grant Show is Sun on the Water, composed and performed by my friend John Park Wheeler. This is Rhonda Grant with the Rhonda Grant Show, author of Magical Forces Within, Extraordinary Discoveries in an Ordinary Life, inviting you to look for the magical forces within yourself today and every day. Thanks for tuning in to the Rhonda Grant Show with your host, Rhonda Grant. If you would like to find out more information about Rhonda and her upcoming guests and the work that she does, go to her website, rhondagrantauthor.com. That's rhondagrantauthor.com. Digital Audio Health by Cymatrax.